All right, welcome back to Money Matters. This is lesson number three. And today we're going to be talking about unions and, the, and related questions regarding unions. And the related questions are all very interesting, in my opinion, and very pertinent and very important on many levels. So questions we're going to address today, um, dealing with unions and also guilds. And if you're not sure what a guild is, a guild, in this context, the Talmud talks a lot about guilds. Today, I don't know, are there guilds? Is that, do we call that guilds? Associations. Associations. But we, these could be either formal or informal, so I'll give you an informal example. Let's say, I don't know, high-speed internet companies have a guild, an unofficial under-the-table guild or association where they're agreeing not to operate in each other's regions. So, for example, if you want fiber, cable, connection, high-speed internet, in your town, in your address, there's only one provider. What are the odds that there's only one provider per address? It's kind of crazy. In many places in the country, there's only one provider. Now, there's many reasons that this is due to, but one of the reasons could be, I'm not, I'm not God forbid, accusing anyone. I'm just saying it could be because there's an unspoken slash spoken agreement, right? This tacit agreement that we're, I'm not going to operate in your turf, you won't operate in my turf, and then everyone can charge what they wish without that competition. The question is, is that kosher? Um, antitrust laws we're gonna deal with today. Um, what, what, what do we call this? Not collusion, is it collusion? Colluding together? Something like that. Um, antitrust, unions, guilds, specifically we're going to ask the following questions. Number one, can guilds create internal guidelines that bump their profits but harm the consumer, as we just discussed? Question number two, can unions negotiate better wages? Can public sector unions, okay? Public sector unions um, negotiate better wages for them while simultaneously harming the taxpayer who has to pay for those additional benefits. So how do we weigh, you know, the individual versus the collective over here? Um, what about, can unions force non-members to pay dues? Right, that's a big question. Right to work states, we'll talk about that. And finally, can unions strike and cause potential harm to society in their various fields? All relevant questions, all questions that have come up. There are certain industries that are not allowed to strike, right? Isn't, isn't famously, or, or the, the um, air traffic control? Isn't Railroad. that, right? Railroads? Certain industries. Huh? 1980. 1980. They shut down the airports, right? Or Reagan, who was it? It was, a, it was Reagan. That's why I remember it so clearly. Nice. You said Reagan overruled what? The striking? The ability to strike? No, Reagan fired. Oh, fired everybody. Got it. Sorry, I don't mean to. No, 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 no. This is good. This is good. This is we're getting we're getting the background. Okay. So now what we're gonna do is let's start off. So there's a lot of questions, a lot of areas related to labor law that we're gonna deal with today. And of course, as you know, I don't have to say it, but I'll say it again. Um, there's two ways to look at this. You can look at this from the U.S. legal perspective, and you can look at it from a Jewish perspective. And while we'll present a little bit about the U.S. perspective, the goal here is to get a little bit of Talmudic wisdom, Jewish insight, a little uh, a little Yiddish cup, you know, action going on here. What do what do the Jews say about unions and labor law and fairness in the workplace, etc.? Now, I want to begin by first establishing why. Um, unions can be helpful and maybe even we can argue necessary and I want to take you back over a hundred years to New York City 
And as you know, 100 years ago in New York City, there were a lot of Jewish immigrants along with other immigrants, but let's, let's, uh, we'll, t- I'm t- we'll tell a Jewish story, right? So there are a lot of Jewish immigrants. And a lot of the young women who had no other skills, having come over from the old country, were now involved in what industry? What's it known as? Garment. Yeah, what's the Yiddish word? The shmata. The shmata business. That's what it's called, shmata. Shmata, by the way, means rags. But in the context of the shmata industry, it means garments. Textiles, garments, etc. And But these young girls really were worked to the bone. So we're going to start off right away with a text. I'm going to read... These are a little bit longer texts. I'm going to read the uh, the opening text over here of this lesson. I'm going to pull up. I'm going to pull up uh, this on the screen. Give me one second while I get to the right page in the PDF. For you guys, it's easy. It's right there, page 105. Give me a second. Wow, there's a lot of text today. Okay, we're, I'm going to have to read very quickly. Um, here we go. Screen share. Okay, here we go. Text 1A. When contemporary Americans think about Jewish women, they rarely think of them as factory workers. <laughs> I don't know what that means. But anyway, okay, I guess that's not the... Okay, women who spent 60 hours a week in a sweatshop where the doors were locked from the outside. We're going to see why that uh, led to a tragedy in 1911. Yet this was the reality for thousands of European Jewish women immigrants in the early 20th century. Jewish women worked on rented sewing machines with thread they paid for out of their meager wages. Now understand this. They worked, but they had to rent the machines and pay for the thread, and they earned meager wages. Okay. Unskilled and poor, these young Jewish women left home to seek employment in factories sewing sweatshirts, caps, dresses, and underwear. By 1900, over 53% of all employed Jewish women worked in the shmata industry, in the garment industry, an industry that was overwhelmingly owned by Jewish manufacturers. These Jewish employers showed no particular sympathy or kindness to their co-religionists. The hours were long, the pay was low, and the conditions deplorable. So what we see here um, in this um, kind of historical account is... What is it? Consecrate every day the public lives of Jewish American women. Okay? 1880-1980. That's the book that this is from. So bottom line is that these Jewish women, um, 50, it's a crazy number, 53% of all employed Jewish women were in the garment industry. That was owned by Jews and the, and the conditions were deplorable. All right, let's continue. Let's continue. Oh, so what happens? What happens is in 1910, I believe, or, sorry, 1909. There was a... Oh, okay. I'm like, hmm. Things that go bump in the night yeah. or in the day. Yeah. <laughs> it's a ghost. No. All right. Um, so, the, in 1909, there was a Jewish girl. She was 15 years old. Uh, she worked in one of these factories. Her name, her name was Clara Lemlich, who stands up, gathered. There was a gathering of Jewish workers who were fed up, and she inspired... Um, the first notions of a strike. Text 1B. I am a working girl, one of those who are on strike against intolerable conditions. I am tired of listening to speakers who talk in general terms. We are here. F- what we are here for is to decide whether we shall or shall not strike. I offer a resolution that a general strike be, be declared now. The hall resounded with shouts of approval. When the chairman of the meeting regained control of the crowd, he cried, Do you mean faith? Will you take the old Jewish oath? 
If I turn traitor to the cause I now pledge, may this hand wither from the arm I now raise. The workers raised their hands and took the pledge that all Jews knew. In its original version, Jews pledged not to forget Jerusalem, lest their right hand wither away. It's actually a verse in Psalms. If I forget you, Jerusalem, let my right hand be, I don't know, be forgotten or wither. So they were now applying this to the strike. Adapted to workers in industrial America, the pledge took on new force in its new environment while retaining the traditional devotion to Jewish group solidarity. The Jewish tradition of social justice and abandoning together for mutual strength, support, and defense expressed itself in the Jewish workers' strong identification with unions. Okay, so that was Clara Lemlich, who gets up and says, rallying cry. Well, what happened was they did vote, and they did, this was again in 1909, and the strike began on November 22nd, 1909. That is when the Jewish... Uh, there was a, a, um, a guild, I don't know, a union formed or, or unofficial union formed. Um, it was called the Uprising of the 20,000, and they went on strike. The, uh, the workers in these sweatshops or in these uh, textile uh, um, plants, they went on strike, and the strike lasted for November, uh, November 22nd, 1909, and it ended February 15th, 2010. So what is that? It's a few months, right? November... 09 to February 10, December, January, February, three months. Um, and it improved some of the conditions, but not in all of the uh, factories, which led to the tragedy that happened on March 25th, 1911. Take a look at text 1C. The following year, this is a famous tragedy, on March 25th, 1911, a fire broke out at the Triangle Shirtwaist Company, one of the largest factories on the Lower East Side, and one of the companies most resistant to unionism. 100, listen to this, such a tragedy. 146 young women lost their lives in that fire, mainly because the doors of the factory had been locked from the outside and the women jumped out of the windows in a desperate attempt to save themselves. The New York World, which is the newspaper, described the scene in this way. The first signs that persons in the street knew, sorry, the first signs that persons in the street knew that these top three stories had turned into red furnaces in which human creatures were being caught and incinerated was when screaming men and women and boys and girls threw themselves into the streets far below. They jumped with their clothing ablaze. The hair of some of the girls streamed up aflame as they leaped. Thud after thud sounded on the pavement. I mean, it's reminiscent, of course, of 9-11. This was a tragedy, 146 girls lost their lives in the Triangle Shirtwaist Company fire, and, um, and, and the doors were locked from the outside. You can imagine, uh, um, as a result of this tragedy, a lot of things shifted. And what, the reason why we're starting the class by talking about this history and, and this tragedy is to kind of, as I said before, is to lay the foundation for, for understanding why it is that there's a strong argument that unions are not only valid, but really necessary to protect the worker. Because left to the devices of those that own the factories, the, own, the ones that are making the profit, they might turn, a, turn away from, first of all, reasonable wages, and number two, a safe conditions in the workplace. And so in order to, to advocate, how are you going to advocate for yourself? Right, you're, you're this immigrant girl, you barely know the language, or maybe you don't know the language, you need a job and you're desperate. So how are you gonna advocate for yourself? But when you band people together and you have representation, ah, now you can get something going. So there's a strong argument for unions and for um, this type of collective, um, not necessarily bargaining of wages, but also but really this, this collective power. Um, okay, which leads us to the question, to, to, a, to, to, to one of the questions that's going to come up in today's class, one of the case studies. And I don't know that I'm going to read this whole thing, case study one. It's going back about 10 years ago 
or so. Um, it takes place in Wisconsin, and it's with Governor Scott Walker, who was then the government of Wisconsin, governor of Wisconsin, and he wished to take away the ability for public sector workers to collectively bargain, to, to negotiate their wages. He wanted to put a cap on this. Certain things can't be negotiated. He said certain things could be negotiated. Certain, certain government uh, jobs could be negotiated for, but others should not have the ability to negotiate. And the question that we're going to deal with, again, I'm, I don't want to read it because, again, it's another long text, and we have too much content to get to today to read all these, uh, you know, all, all the text inside. So case study one at, 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 you know, uh, encourages us to think about the following question. When it comes to public sector workers, so their salaries are paid for essentially by taxes, by the community, and they are necessary, they're, you know, they're necessary jobs, and the government has to operate, and so they have a little bit of leverage over there because they know the government needs to, needs to function. Uh, the people need, need these workers to function. So the question that we're dealing with is, um, can, is it right or do we say that they should have the power to collectively, you know, collective bargaining and negotiations and, and, and you know, that sort of thing? Or do we, say, do we say that it's unfair leverage? Now, to present kind of the, the, the reasons why maybe not, we have a really powerful, I believe it's a powerful text, which is text 3a. Okay, and I'm going to read this one as well. It's a little bit longer. Before we get to the Jewish text, I'll read all these. Okay, from Franklin Roosevelt on, progressive politicians have worried about the impact of giving public employees the right to organize. So it's not a new question, by the way, just so you know. It's from FDR right on. It's been, it's been for a while that the question has been asked about, you know, should public uh, sector employees have the right to organize? There is a reason for that, for the question or for the, for the worry about this. The public sector is different from the private sector. When General Motors negotiates with its workers to change its pension and healthcare benefits system, the United Auto Workers knows that unless it sits down at the table and negotiates for real, the company could easily close shop, right? Yeah. That's the company can say, all right, so we can't pay you guys and that's it, we're out. Um, so they have, they have incentive to, to, to negotiate. However, when the, um, when the teachers union sits down with Mayor Bloomberg or Governor Walker, or any other elected official, again, this is, going, this is a, an older text, they have an unfair piece of leverage, a built-in structural dysfunction. They know that the governor can't shut down the schools, right? There's no reason for them to negotiate in good faith, former New York City school chancellor Joel Klein told me this morning. And there's a second corrupting factor. Now, so again, one factor is that here you have the unions in the public sector that are negotiating with the other side that really doesn't have the ability to play hardball, because if they play hardball, what, the schools are going to close down? I mean, Marilyn, you said you were involved in, in, a, in a school strike. Six weeks. Six weeks. That was, sounds like it was a disaster. Not a good thing. I hated every minute of it. Yeah, <laughs> right. But not, not fun. I was on a picket line, yes, and um, I thought that the issues were very unfair to people like me. Meaning, right. the um, government was unfair. Government was being unfair. This argument says, and that's yeah, that's that's a piece of it. This this argument is saying that the on the government side, the government can't really shut down things that it needs to provide. So then there's there's unfair leverage on the side of the unions in the public sector. Now there's a second. He says there's a second corrupting factor. The UAW United Auto Workers can't vote or campaign for new management. Right, the management is General Motors. However, the teachers union can. And they do. Far too often, new contractors have been acts of 
sorry, new contracts have been acts of collusion rather than negotiation, with the unions wielding the extremely powerful sledgehammer of campaign contributions and eager bodies to staff phone banks, leaflet, and go to door and go door to door. Essentially, public sector unions have the ability to sit on both sides of the table. Their managers are their employees. Another profound structural dysfunction. In some larger cities, public employees make up a disproportionate percentage of all voters, an estimated 20% in New York, and believe me, teachers are, are among the most assiduous of voters. It is no wonder that politicians of both parties in union states have gifted these unions egregious benefits, especially in areas like work rules that don't show up in the budget. So basically, the second argument here, and I'll, I'll review both of these in a second, the second argument against, or, or the, the second argument that shares concern about um, unions in the public sector is that the unions have a lot wield a lot of power in voting and who are they voting in they're voting in people that are pro-union which means that they're negotiating with people that they helped elect boom so now you're dealing with an unfair now you're you're stacking the whole the, you're, you're, you're it's like you're playing with with weighted dice right it's like you're playing in a system where the game is rigged so there's two reasons why. Um, unions, um, why, why, why one might be a bit wary about unionizing in the public sector. Number one, right? Number one from the simple fact that the government can't really shut down. GM can shut down and walk away. So, you know, you might lose your job forever if you play too much hardball, or maybe they'll take the jobs overseas, right? So you have to, you have to come, you have to be willing to give a little bit, but in New York, you're a teacher in New York. What's New York going to do? How long are they going to hold out until they get absolutely battered by parents that need their kids in school? I mean, how long can they hold out? Of course they're going to give in. So therefore, the negotiations might not be in such good faith. Second of all, the second factor is uh, on the negotiation side, you're negotiating, you're dealing with managers and, 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 and higher ups that, that are elected officials. And how are they elected? <laughs> Through this process where teachers are heavily involved and others are heavily involved that might be unions. So anyway, the point is that this, these are some arguments against. Now, their counter argument is. Excuse me. Yeah. Sir. Uh, he said about these work rules. First, first of all, Al Shanker was Jewish. And he's the one really that, and I worked in the New York City civil system before the union and after the union. Before the union, this work rules, this, this pisses me off, forgive me. But a principal could you work from, let's say, eight to three, because that's what it was. At a quarter of three, the principal could say you have to stay for a meeting. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing we could do. Right. There were also rats that went on my desk. Um, it, I just have to tell you that um, David Dubinsky also, in other words, I'm a New York person, the daughter of a businessman who refused mm. to have anything to do with unions and nearly clutched when his daughter is out on strikes. You right. Can, you can imagine. Conflicted uh, well, emotions I, over there. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm just saying. Would you be able to repeat um, or summarize what she yeah. said? Yeah. So sure. Marilyn is saying that she worked in the New York City public school system before unions and after the unions. Before the unions, the principal could come in and tell the teachers at 2.45, you got to stay for a meeting after school. 
and that was perfectly valid. And there were rats, you said, that ran on your desk as well. <laughs> right, so, okay. And the unions, I'm, I'm assuming the, the, the upshot is that once the unions got in, three o'clock is three o'clock, and no more rats. So the conditions improved. And Marilyn said that her dad was anti-union, and he almost plots when she was on the picket line in New York City um, striking. So it's, it's, what's interesting is you have these arguments on both sides. On the one hand, we might argue, say, in the public sector, the, sh the union shouldn't have such rights because the, 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 the public's at its, at, at its knees. On the other hand, who's going to protect the public workers? They also need protection. As you said, what, because the principal doesn't, you know, has nothing to get home to, so therefore everyone has to stay till five? That's mashuga, right? Or, or that the conditions should be less than ideal, teaching conditions and, and hygiene or um, cleanliness. Okay, so for these reasons and more, maybe one could argue that you do need unions. So we're going to try to get, you know, it's the, and the issue is not, an, it's not a Jewish issue, it's not a new issue, it's an old issue. The old issue is what's better? Or maybe we find some sort of compromise between balancing these powers and these things. Okay, so we're going to look at some Jewish wisdom on the matter. I will say straight up, straight off the bat, you do, in the Talmud, when you look at Talmudic law and Talmudic ethics, you don't find a direct conversation about unions. But what you do find, as I mentioned earlier, is about guilds. Guilds are basically associations of various um, uh, laborers that are in the similar field. So we're going to start with a story from the Talmud. This is a, okay, it's a great story. It's, I mean, it's legitimately a great story. Um, I'm going to put this up on the screen once again. And, of course, you have it here. This is going to be text 4A. All right, text 4A. It's on page 113. Okay, Talmudic Gilds. Listen to this. It almost sounds like a limerick. There were butchers. Maybe not. There were butchers who made an agreement that whoever worked on the day assigned to another would be subject to having his animal skins ripped to pieces. Oh, my God. <laughs> all right. First of all, you, but this first paragraph should evoke a lot of questions. What, what is happening? Some, a butcher's guild agreed on a schedule on a rotation. Each one would take one day to work. So let's say we're all butchers. I would take a day. De I would take Monday, Deborah Tuesday, Mindy Wednesday, Marilyn Thursday, Eric, you get Friday, Larry, I would give you Shabbos, but I can't, so I'm going to give you Sunday. <laughs> all right? That's it. So we got, we got all the days covered here. And whoever works, whoever sells meat or is butchering, whatever, oh, that's right there. On the day that's not theirs, the rest of them are going to come, a little mafia style, and rip up the animal skins. Okay. Now, one of them went, so the story goes, one of them went and worked on the day assigned to another. So they shredded his animal skins. They came before Rava. So, so he went to the rabbi, and they, he, the, they all brought, the rabbi went to the rabbi, and the rabbi required those who ripped the skins to pay for the damages. What? Plot twist. So first of all, there's an agreement amongst the butchers in the town, which we'll call a guild. There's an agreement here that everyone's going to work on one day. And if you violate that agreement, the punishment is the animal skins get ripped. I don't know, I guess in addition to the meat, they would sell the skins. So that was a way of penalizing, you know, the person who violated this agreement. So they did so. A person violated it. They, they did so. They ripped the skins. Then he comes to the rabbi. And the rabbi rules in his favor. And he required them to pay for the damages. So the question is, well, what's going on? Are guilds not respected? Are they yes respected? What is happening here? Why did they make the agreement in the first place? Etc. The question is enhanced when you take a look at text 4b. 
Take a look at text 4b. The residents of a city have the authority to fix weights and measures, to set market prices, to set wages for workers, to inflict penalties for infringement of their rules. It seems like, like residents of a city, guilds can also, should also have the ability to band together and inflict penalties on each other. So why did the rabbi rule against this story? Are you guys with me on the question? Why did the rabbi, if they had an agreement and one guy violated the agreement, so his skin should have been ripped. Why does the rabbi say, oh, you got to pay for the skins? What's, it's a guilt. So to understand this, I need to explain what's going on here. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think they made that agreement in the first place? Why do you think they did a rotation? Fairness. One way to look at it is fairness. That would be the rose-tinted glass. That's, that's very kind. Uh, it's a well, kind way to look at it. Thursday. What was their inch? What was the butcher's interest in it? According to the commentaries, listen to this. Pretty devious. According to the commentaries, the reason for the butcher's uh, agreement in that town was in order to maintain, to drive up prices by limiting competition. Essentially, they were saying the following. If we all work every day, there's too much supply, won't be enough demand, the prices will be driven down. So we're going to collude with each other. Straight up, straight up old school collusion. I'm not going to, we're all going to agree to limit the supply of meat to only work on one of the days or whatever it is assigned to you or to me. And that way, keep the supply down, keep the demand high. It's like straight up oil style and, and you know, gas, whatever it is. Like whatever, you know, the collu- there was a collusion case. There was a collusion case a few years ago. Tuna. I think there was a tuna case. Am I wrong here? I think I was I think I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. It could be, could it be right or wrong. Those are the two options. Those are two options. There was some industry with some food, I think it might have been tuna, where they, they were, there was like a straight up, you know, we're all going to set the price here and no one's going to break and we're all going to keep it, keep it nice and high. Um, <laughs> and then they call it inflation. But, but I digress. The point is that these guys are trying to keep the price of meat high. And so they said, if someone violates it, there's going to be a punishment because we all have to keep it high, keep the supply down, keep, keep, keep the demand high, and keep the prices high. Which explains why, Ra- why Rava, why the rabbi said, uh-uh. You know why? Because they were not able, they were not allowed to make that agreement without one other provision. Take a look at the next text, that um, text 4C. Oh, so before text 4C, um, up, 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 one second, Rav Yemar Argues there's in the Talmud we we didn't quote Rav Yemar but Rav Yemar is the one who quoted text 4b and says well what's going on don't the people of the city have the authority to inflict penalties on each other for infringing their financial their their economic rules so what's wrong with the unions so sorry what's wrong with unions what's wrong with the guild that had their own rules with the butchers so text 4c is the Talmud's answer the Talmud says as follows Rav Papa, Rav Papa said. Rava did well in not replying, for what Rav Yemar quoted only applies when there is no distinguished person. This is going to be a mate, by the way, I'm telling you, outside, this is going to be a major concept. Adam Chashuv, a distinguished person, which you'll see what, what this role is in a minute. But if there is a distinguished person, the members of a guild are not empowered to make such stipulations without him. Let me explain what the distinguished person is and what role they play and who, what does that even mean, distinguished person? Sounds so vague and so bizarre. Remember I told you that the intention of the butchers was to keep the prices high? Essentially, that is something that hurts the consumer. Because when you have this collusion within the butchers, what you're doing is you're keeping the prices high and and the consumer has to pay now high-priced meat. 
before you enact something that benefits your guild, let's say you're the butchers, you can do whatever you want conceptually, but if your, if your actions are going to affect the consumer, you have to check in with an objective party, with someone that has an objective set of eyes that can look out for the welfare of the community. This is what we call in the Talmud, the Adam Chashuv, the distinguished person. The distinguished person is basically, whether it's like a, a mayor or a governor or a rabbi, you know, a rav, whatever it is, some sort of rabbi or distinguished person, I guess in the Talmud times, it would probably be a rabbinic figure, but it would be a distinguished, a person that is not only concerned about making sure the butchers are making a, a nice profit, but also looking for the welfare of the entire community. Is someone able to see the bigger picture? that not only benefiting one segment, but really benefiting all. How do we balance, right? Fair prices for the consumer with fair profits for the butcher. So the distinguished person might say, I hear you about your desire to only work certain days to keep the prices high and the supply low, demand high and supply low. However, we also have to think about what people can afford. Can they put, you know, uh, can they have chicken soup for Shabbat? Or is it going to be price prohibitive because of, because of the way you guys are operating? And so without checking in with this distinguished person, the guild uh, agreements are null and void. In other words, although we, we have this, uh, this, this idea that guilds and, 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 and you know, um, shared interest groups can create their own financial decisions, that's only if it's not affecting anyone else. The moment it affects another segment of society, now you have to check in with someone else that's the leader of the community, as it were, to check in with that. Rava in that town, Rava, the rabbi that we talked about, Rava was the leader. They never checked in with him. The butcher guild never checked in with him. So when they came to him, with this issue because they had ripped one of the guy's skins who wasn't following the rules. And they came to Rubber and said, I never signed off on this agreement. You got to pay the guy for the skins. You guys with me on the story? Basically, the rabbi said, you had a great idea to bump up your profits, but I don't agree with it because it's going to hurt the, the, uh, the, um, the populace. It's going to hurt the, the community. Therefore, your, your agreement is null and void. The guy who sold meat on the day that's not his acted, you know, there's no problem acting such a way. And you, could, you weren't allowed to, to rip his skins because you had to check in with me. That is essentially the understanding of this, uh, of this law. So just to, just to see that I didn't make this up, this is the classic commentaries of the Talmud. So let's read this inside. And this is going to be text number uh, 5a. 5a. All right, this is the Ramban. Not the Rambam, Maimonides. This is Nachmanides. Also, medieval uh, biblical and Talmudic commentary, text 5a. Deborah, would you like to read text 5a? In the case of the butchers, the reason that we say that they cannot make any such agreement when there's a distinguished person appears to be because by this arrangement, prices will rise. Consequently, it's possible that a loss will result to the consumers. Therefore, this agreement is not effective until it receives the sanction of the sage. So, thank you. So, essentially, what I was saying before is, 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 literally quoting the Ramban. Ramban says, look, the reason why you need a distinguished person is because if you just leave the butchers to their own devices, it's going to hurt the consumer. It's a loss to the consumer. So therefore, the agreement is not valid until it receives the blessing of the sage. The sage is not someone who's stroking their Talmudic beard. It's just someone who, I mean, maybe also, but it's really someone who is looking at the welfare of the entire community and not just one sector. So great. Big oil made a killing this year. But you know what? 
Families also need to, to put gas to drive their kids to school. And so how do you balance those two? You need someone that's seeing the big picture and kind of managing all this stuff to make sure that everything is kosher. And who better to do so than someone who's steeped in, you know, hopefully steeped in, you know, in, in a Jewish community, someone steeped in Torah wisdom and someone who is a righteous individual. That's who you want at that helm and someone who knows a little bit about economics as well. That doesn't hurt. So basically that's why Rava said that, uh, that, 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 that the agreement is null and void. Um, in a secular place, they're, they're judges that do that. Yes. So, right. Oh. So this would be no different than when there's a merger of corporations. Who recently merged? Uh, any major, which, which major corporations merged recently? I feel like there's been some... We have the thing with, with the drugs right now. Are you having... Um, oh, bumping up the prices of, of uh, pharmaceuticals. Yes, yes. But I'm just thinking in the context of when... So when companies want to merge. So I don't know, a few years ago, what was it? Um, T-Mobile and Sprint merged. And I mean, there's other... Like uh, years ago, it was what? Time Warner and you know cable companies were merging. Remember that? Yeah. AOL, Time Warner and... Yeah. Some other things. HBO and Discovery recently merged. I don't know if they were antitrust, but the question really at Disney, the question is, you know, when companies merge, now you're taking away. So I know with cell phones, I, I remember that, that case. The question is, you're going from four major cell phone companies down to three. How will that affect the prices? So T-Mobile had a promise, had a swear up and down that no, 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 they're not going to raise prices and they'll, they'll create other smaller competitions and whatever it is. Like they had a promise, you know, yeah, every direction that they're gonna, you know, not not uh, take advantage of 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 that of that strength in the marketplace. And I don't know if they they I don't know if they uh, you know filled their their <laughs> fulfilled their their uh, their pledge or not. But that's what it was. Larry, jump in. Uh, but theoretically, but I'm I'm just saying I'm not saying it works all the time. But yeah. theoretically, uh, mergers create can create more efficiency. Yes. Who theoretically can reduce the price to the consumer. I'm Cor not saying it happens. Correct. Correct. And that's and that's the crazy thing. I'm not an economic. I'm not an economist. If I can even pronounce the word correctly. However, <laughs> I, I'm struggling. Clearly, I'm not. Um, but I will say that my just uh, very you know. Um, uh, superficial uh, awareness and view of these things is that you can create a model to show anything, right? One model says that when you raise the minimum wage, it's going to be great. One model says when you raise the minimum wage, it's going to be disastrous. One model says that this, you know, anything, you can ha create different models that go from one that. So, yes, um, having mergers, is that good or bad? I don't know. It depends who you ask. I, and by the way, just so you know, I'm not weighing, I don't know, I'm not weighing on this. I'm not qualified to answer this question at all. And I'm sure it depends on ex the exact, you know, um, uh, conditions of the marketplace and, and, and the specific um, industry. But I will say this. Yeah. Sometimes when you weigh, uh, increase wages for a particular company or entity, um, it could also be costly to the consumer too, to the general public. Exactly, exactly. And so that's why, and no, no, not, very un, not unlike what happens in our country, if two companies want to merge and thereby kind of uh, eliminate competition, which could raise the price for the consumer, so the government will weigh in on this and, and there will be hearings and they have to present the case and there's arguments and counter arguments and then they make a decision whether or not they're going to sanction the merger or not. That's it. Oh, remember? Oh, I know what it was recently. It was airlines, Spirit and Frontier or maybe Frontier and JetBlue or something. 
There was some two airlines recently, maybe about a year ago, year and a half ago, were trying to merge, and I think they got blocked. I think Spirit and Frontier got blocked, but I could be wrong. But, but I don't think they were allowed to. That's what I'm saying. I don't think they were allowed to. Yeah, yeah I think they, they got blocked. Anyway, so that's the point. So Adam Khashov in Judaism, the, the, the distinguished person, is someone who is signing off on this for the greater good. Now, how would we apply this to unions? So we could say, oh, oh, oh one more thing, one more thing. Um, so if there is a distinguished person, they would sign off on, on this agreement of the butchers, for example, that the Talmud cites, and they might say as follows, yes, we will, uh, yes, you know, it, you guys can make this agreement, but provided that the price of chalent meat or brisket never rises above X dollars because that's what the, that's what the consumer, that's what the community can afford. So that's where the, the, the distinguished person kind of work with both sides and say, okay, fine, you want to protect you, your industry and your, and your interests, sure, but we have to also worry about the consumer. Therefore, let's, let's create a, a cap on the you know, ceiling on the prices um, as it were. Okay, now this is, this is all about guilds. We can pretty easily apply this to, um, to unions as well. Because, first of all, unions and guilds share similar econ economic considerations or interests in the sense that, I mean, guilds are about uh, laborers getting together, people in the industry getting together to protect their interests. Unions are about workers getting together to protect their interests. Seems like a similar, similar context. It's not a huge jump to go from one to the other. So it would seem that according to Jewish law, unions can absolutely, people can get together and negotiate for themselves and, 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 and work to protect themselves in the, in the workforce. That doesn't seem to be a problem at all, um, provided that that uh, unionizing or that a collective, uh, you know, collective mind does not harm the general populace. You with me on this? Just like we said by guilds, that sure, the butchers, you guys can get together from today to tomorrow, sure, but we just have to make sure it's not hurting the consumer um, and the community. So the same thing would be on the side of the unions. You guys want to unionize and get together and collectively bargain? Sure, but we will still have to oversee this and make sure that it's not going to hurt the, um, certainly in the public sector, that it's not going to hurt the, um, the larger group. That would be kind of where that, where that limitation comes in. And you might also need a distinguished person in that case to, uh, to weigh in um, to weigh in on this. So can, according to Jewish law or Talmudic law, can workers unionize? Yes. Can public workers unionize? Yes. However, can unionize, negotiate sweet deals that harm the general public? No. No, just like the butchers can't negotiate, uh, can't collude to harm the consumer, unions also in the public sector cannot uh, um, unionize and then harm the public. They can't do that. What, who determines whether that's, that constitutes harm or not? Okay, so you need some overseeing body. Judaism would probably say you need a distinguished person to make sure that the teachers are getting a fair, a fair, um, a, a fair uh, workforce condition, a fair, a fair uh, salaries, and at the same time that the schools remain open and the kids can have a place to go to school. So it'll be someone kind of overseeing that and try to make sure that that happens. Um, so Governor Walker, a decade ago, in, uh, in, um, in Wisconsin, <laughs> is saying that union, you know, he's not accepting any negotiations from unions or certain unions anymore in the public sector, not negotiating, it is what it is, take it or leave it. Is that, is that the right way to do it? I don't know. I, it would depend on the situation. And, and we have to make sure that the, that the individual who is the distinguished person, you know, is someone who is, you know, who's, who's really a, a good person for this. And um, I don't know, I'm not going to wait. Trade, 
commission. That's FTC. FTC. Yeah. That's why they have those the uh, that that body. All those bodies, those different yeah. bodies that regulate different industries that are supposed to be the distinguished person. Right. And that's exactly following in in concert in, in in aligned with Jewish thought. I think it's a it's a very good application. Now let's talk about right to Does work. This, um, yeah. Go to one person or to more or less a baked in. Oh, good question. In the in the original um, in the original formulation of this in the Talmud, it talks about an adam chasha, which means a single a single person. However, it's interesting that you mentioned that because take a look at five C. Take a look at five C. This is an actual record. Uh, from a Jewish community, I'll tell you in a second. This was Lithuania in the year 1686, and this is the record of the Jewish community of Lithuania. Okay, and here's how they, this is how they implemented the distinguished person. Only two members of the trustees of a guild may be elected by the members of the guild themselves, while the, while the other two have to be appointed by the heads of the kahal, the community, from among the members of the community. So they created the governing body Two people from within the industry and two people from without the industry. So their distinguished person was comprised of a of a body, right? A body of people who understand the business, right? You have to have somebody that's right. the distinguished person. So in short, the Talmud is talking about a distinguished person. It sounds like one person, but the way Jewish communities have adopted this over the years, and this is one example, is maybe to bring in people from within and without the industry to represent both sides. So you have somebody, let's say, from the butcher saying, "This is what we need." And someone from the community is saying, but this is what we can afford, and then try to try to work with that. Um, and it looks like they had four, which doesn't do well for a majority vote. But maybe they had a fifth <laughs> rabbi. Maybe the rabbi was the one overseeing that uh, the the uh, the members of this uh, of this board. Okay. Then you have the question, the next question, because again we're try- we're going to move through this. We have a lot of uh, we have four different topics. So that was topic number one. So bottom line with unions, kosher, public sector unions. Kosher. If they want to negotiate a sweet deal for themselves that's going to harm the public, we should have an oversight. An over, there should be oversight and an overseeing body to make sure that that is yashar, that that is kosher. Okay, moving on. What about right to work? So, what about a situation where there is a union and someone says, I don't want to pay dues. I don't want to pay dues. I don't want to have to. What? You're going to force me to pay dues to work just because there's a union? What's going on over there? Now, the union is saying, Hey, we are getting benefits for you, right? The union is saying, as part of, let's say, a teacher, if you're a teacher, so then we're negotiating salary, benefits, work conditions on your behalf. You better pay up. Marilyn, this is a, this is a real question. Did you have to pay dues? Of course. And the Supreme Court just said that I don't have to. The Supreme Court says you don't. You, okay. But the Supreme back, Court said... I'm sorry. That strike affected me, and it was all those years ago. The Supreme Court just said that no one has to belong to a union. You don't have to pay dues. But the contract that the union makes, you are entitled to the benefit. Interesting. So that's that's a recent recent ruling of the Supreme Court is that the worker can benefit from the collective bargaining negotiation, but is not required, cannot be forced to pay the dues. Correct. Okay. Okay. So I don't know the case that that happened, but that's an interesting, it's an interesting question because the unions will say, well, that's not fair. We're working on your behalf. We're getting benefits for you. You should pay into the system. 
What's up with that? You're just getting and not giving. Whereas the worker might say, I didn't ask for this. I'm not paying you a penny. Uh, and, and if you're negotiating, then that's great. By the way, there are 28 states that are right to work. Right to work means right to work states are states in which you do not have to, you're not required to pay union dues. Um, but the question is from a Jewish perspective, what would the Talmud say about this? W, what would Talmud say? WWTS, what would Talmud say? So um, case study two, sorry? No, now it's 28. This is a little bit of an older, yeah. There's been six more states that have jumped on this. Um, case study two, which we're going to skip. We're not going to read this inside. Is a re- it's a question. It's about a guy who, who is, uh, is not looking to pay dues, but will benefit from, uh, from the negotiations. So let's take a look. We're going to skip a few pages. And we are going to go to text number seven. Text number seven is from the Rashba, another medieval um, early uh, Talmudic commentary. He's very prominent in the scholarly world, the ancient Jewish scholarship world. So his, his words have a lot of weight. Um, Mindy, do you mind reading text number seven? A community can enact laws and make agreements as they see fit. These have the strength of Torah laws. They can fine and punish anyone who violates any of their collective agreements. The same applies if a resolution is passed by all artisans of a specific profession within a city such as if the butchers, dyers, sailors, or the like, all agree to some resolution that relates to their profession. Every organized association of a specific trade is to be considered as a city for itself. This applies even if the other residents... Okay, I found this on the web for a Siri considered. Check it out. You you said something that sounded like S-I-R-I. This thing is just triggered very easily. All right, continue. Sorry, this applies? This applies even if the other residents of the city did not consent to the agreement. Take a look at this. Take a look at this. The Rashba says that why do guilds, going back to guilds, because remember, that's the only Talmudic precedent. Talmud doesn't speak about unions, but it does speak about guilds, and we're going to apply it from guilds. The Rashba says that the rationale of why guilds work is because all of the artisans are agreeing. They're all buying in which means that in the case of the butcher that we had before in the Talmud, it must have been that he had initially agreed to abide by those bylaws, not to work on a day that's not his, and then violated it, which is why they thought that they could rip his skins, because he violated what he had agreed to. The rabbi said, all y'all, you know, go to your rooms, because no one ran it by me, and I'm the DP, distinguished person. So therefore, y'all's agreement doesn't hold water. So that was that case. But what's interesting is the Rashba says, that basically all of the artisans of that, of that profession have to have buy-in. And if they don't, then it's only binding on those that bought in. So which means that can you force union on someone that doesn't opt in? Not really, but if they don't opt in, then they're out. So they don't get the benefits either. If you're not in, then you're out. You're not part of that guild. You're not part of that union. So to get the benefit of that union, but not to pay in, it would seem would not be kosher. However, there is another opinion that... Uh, because Before you move on, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Don't you think that's just a little bit of a cop-out? Like, just read it for, I think the important word here is all, which is why it's cap, why it's italicized. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reality is, you know, we have a famous saying, right? Two Jews, three opinions. Right. They, they don't get, they, it's, this feels like a cheap, a cheap law. All you gotta do is say, look, if you could find a, something that every single carpenter agrees to, fine. Well, 
I mean, what are I the mean, odds? Yeah. What are the odds? So now, so now he sounds like it sounds generous until you realize what are the chances you're going to get everyone? And you get one person who says, well, I'm not agreeing to that. I, I'm willing to take a job for a dollar an hour cheaper. And then you're not, I mean, I think you've got to be like we have now where unions work in a majority. Oh, uh, uh, so I hear that. And that's, and so there's another opinion. And the other opinion says it does go by majority. And that's Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who was a more modern rabbi. He says it does not go by all, like the Rashba, and, and others agree with Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. But you'll see that in text number eight. Take a look at text number eight. Uh, Marilyn, please read this one. Artisans can make agreements amongst themselves. In their professional associations, they are like the residents of the city. Obviously, it depends on a majority. A minority or even half does not have visibility. Thank you, sir. Rabbi Feinstein, who lived in the Lower East Side in the 1900s, so he, I mean, relatively recently, so he says, no, 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 you definitely do not need a majority. Sorry, you definitely do not need unanimous consent because I think, to your point, Eric, two Jews, three opinions, good luck getting any unanimous uh, beliefs. He says it depends on the majority. A minority doesn't have the ability, but if there's a majority, then it is binding, and then it is, um, it, it is, uh, it, it, you know, it's it's uh, um, it, it's valid on the people in that industry. So now, based on this, if we posit that um, unions are only opt-in partnerships, the Rashba is basically saying like this: that it's only on those a union or a guild is only opt-in, which means, you know. That, that the, the agreement of the guild is only binding on those that agree to those rules. If you don't, you can be outside, but then you're outside. So in other words, if you're the carpenter that wants to charge a dollar less, you can, but then you don't get whatever benefits that group has created amongst themselves. That group has to be unanimous. We're not going to bring, it's not majority that would then be binding on you. You can do whatever you want. You're outside the guild. You're not part of it. That's it. Do you need to pay dues? No. If it was a union, you need to pay dues? No. You don't get the benefits. You don't get the, you don't pay. You don't play. You get nothing from it. You don't take anything away from it. Uh, uh, you don't benefit from it. You don't give to it. You're outside of it. That's the Rashba's position. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein is interesting because he says no, it goes by majority, which means that even if you are the minority and you're like, I don't want this, I don't want to pay, it seems like you can almost be co-opted into it to say, no, you gotta, you gotta be in this um, and 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 be part of it. But it's what's interesting is Rabbi Feinstein also says that if in whatever, and I don't know the details about how this plays out in the U.S., if somebody says they don't want to be part of the union and they, they relinquish any benefits, then you could not make them pay, obviously, because they're outside of that. Take a look at what Rabbi Feinstein says in text, and I'll read this one. Because union employees have separated themselves from non-members, in that the union does not lobby on their behalf at all, the union has no right to force non-members to act according to its wishes. In other words, if there is a, an understanding that the union employees are only negotiating for union employees and not for non-members of the union, then of course, they're not benefiting, they don't have to pay. So you really have two positions on this. Ultimately, it's kind of the same, which means that at the end of the day, if someone wants to opt out, they pretty much can as long as they're not receiving benefit. If they are receiving the benefit from it, according to Roy Feinstein, since it's more about the majority and the majority has agreed to this union and you, the minority, are benefiting from it, it would seem that you would then have to pay in according to Rabbi Feinstein, but not according to the Rashba if you cut yourself out. Also, according to Rabbi Feinstein, if you're not getting the benefits, then of course you don't have to pay in.
So those would be, that's where, that's where Judaism would stand on the question of, does someone have to, is, can someone be forced to, uh, to pay into the union? All right, now, yes. Wouldn't that be union busting? Union busting, yes, it would be union busting. Yes. Well, I mean, it depends how you... Tr- I don't mean to be that. No, no, no. It depends on how you... Def- well, the truth is, I said yes, but I don't know exactly what that term... I don't know um, how you... you how do you mean the term? Why would I hire a union person if I can... Oh, so why would you hire a union uh, um, art, uh, carpenter, right, if you could hire the non-union carpenter? And the, the answer is, you're right. You're right. Rabbi Feinstein, though, seems to say it's more of a majority, and therefore you could put a little bit more pressure on the other guys to be part of it. But at the end of the day, if they're not being represented in the negotiations, then they're not represented. Larry, jump in. I'm having a little trouble distinguishing between a guild and a union. Um, To me, a guild is some organization that has some specific learned skills that Mm -hmm. other people Mm -hmm. don't have. Or a union, there could be a window washers union, a janitory union, and I'm not sure those people have unique skills that I think a guild would have. I hear your question. I think to me, and by the way, I'm, just so you know, I'm not the one creating the, the connection or the association between guilds and unions. This is something that rabbis have over the last while said that we can apply one to the other. Um, I, you know, I don't know that I can answer that specific question. I will say that I think in general terms, the idea, the thought process behind a guild kind of organizing is to say, we have a shared interest, we have a shared skill in the marketplace, we are contributing a certain you know, way and we want to band together for our benefit. A worker, share, workers in shared spaces, I think it's a similar concept, right? If we're all shoemakers and we all know how to you know, make and fix shoes, sounds like that would be a similar concept. I mean, if you think about it, back in the day, the guild would be tradespeople that are working, and now we're talking about workers that are working. I don't think it's such a far stretch. If it's about the level of skill, I mean, I don't know who's to determine, you know, where we draw that line. I think that would be a bit of a, of a, of a moving target if we were to draw that line. And the, and and there is no definitive line of saying, you know, only X level skill gets to create a guild as opposed to below that level. So therefore, it but, seems but like there are like the uh, electrical workers union. Yeah. They- they have certain skills sure. that they got certified in or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You, absolutely. That makes them more of a guilt to me than... Yeah, I know. I agree with that. I'm just saying that I don't know that there's a line that we can say, well, below that line, now you can't unionize. I, I don't know that anyone in Jewish thinking has, has drawn that. Um, and I don't think it's, it's like that in, uh, in, 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 uh, in, in other areas. I mean, look. I mean, I, some of the some of the unions that have reached my ears in the news. I'm not, I don't follow this specifically, but I've I've heard recently about Starbucks workers unionizing. There's been a big question about that. Amazon workers unionizing. There's a big discussion about that. I mean, and I think on a human level, you know, when you hear about and there, I've seen some exposés on on Amazon. I'm not I'm not anti Amazon. In fact, I've been tracking a package on Amazon myself earlier. You know, today. So I'm, I'm a big fan, but the point is that I, I know some of the conditions of the delivery workers. They have a massive quota, and they're being, you know, Amazon's all about all about the data, and there's a lot of tracking as how efficient you are delivering, how quickly do you move from one place to the other, how safe do you drive. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, things, and, and the workers are feeling like there's a lot of power being held by the corporation, and a lot of power that we don't have, and and what's to say that they're not going to crush us and demand more, 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 more for the same amount. And so, I mean, look, 
the, the argument goes both ways. I know this. I, here's what I know. Okay, here's what I know. I know that I ordered lunch today from Kosher Gourmet in Toko Hills. This is a true story. And I know that I didn't drive to pick it up. Instead, I opened up my phone and I went to Uber. And Uber has, one of the buttons on Uber is Uber Package. And on Uber Package, I hit, I'm receiving a package. Did I guess, did I tell about this in any of the classes? No. I mentioned it last week. I mentioned it. I hit Uber Package and Uber Package delivered it. And how much did it cost? I think it was about 11 or $12. Wasn't bad, because Kosher Gourmet charges to Sandy Springs like $35, $45, so this is way cheaper. All right, fine, great. And I'm thinking to myself, hold on one second. The whole thing all in, till the driver gets to the store, goes inside, gets the thing, drives here, gets through this gate, you guys know this gate over here, right? gets through the gate, gets buzzed in, drops it by the loading dock, and gets on their merry way, it's pro- and gets back to where they started, it's gotta be an hour, right? It's an hour of, of, of time, and they're only getting 12 bucks. I'm gonna tip, obviously, but, I'm thinking like, I don't know, what cut does Uber get? So how much is left for the worker? And I'm thinking, obviously people are opting in to do this, so I, no one's being you know, um, you know, coerced into this. But at the same time, you know, you do, it, there is this effort or concern to protect the worker from being taken advantage of by, by, the, by the corporation or the company or whatever it is, by the employer. Um, at the same time, we also want to ha- have the consumer, have the, 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 um, you know, the, the community be able to, to, you know, to have you know, certain benefits of, of, these, of these jobs. So you, know, you, you need to balance this. And, and the question really is about who's making that call and, uh, and, and, and how they do so and adjust and, and you know, a, a righteous way for everybody. All right, let's talk about the last step. There's three parts. We did and maybe four parts, but we're, gonna, we're condensing it down to three. And the last step is strikes. What do we say about strikes? Okay, so, so far we've looked at the rights of workers to unionize, negotiate, um, the question of whether they can, you can force due pay, payments of dues from non-members. We spoke about all that stuff. The question is, can stri- in Jewish law, can, can workers strike in order to gain leverage in negotiations? And here's a real case study. Listen to this. You're going to love this case study. I will read this. This is case study three. I call this the case of the angry rabbis. All right, here we go. Case study three. In the winter, in the winter, always New York, in the winter of 1973, a few weeks before Hanukkah, the festival of lights, the rabbis of an American yeshiva issued an ultimatum. Their wages and work conditions, they felt, were intolerable. Their request for remedy had not been answered satisfactorily. Accordingly, as a group, they were going to take concerted action to achieve what they believed to be just aims. If their demands were not met, they were planning to go on strike the following Monday. The head of that yeshiva promptly contacted Rabbi Moshe Feinstein of New York City, we spoke about him before, and posed the question, does Jewish law permit the teachers to go on strike? So here we have Chicago, by the way. Chicago just had a teacher strike recently. New York's 1973. You have a yeshiva in New York, a Jewish school. The teachers are fed up. They need more money. The conditions aren't good. They say, that, they say that's it. If we don't get action, we're going on strike on Monday. The, the head of the school goes to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, they're going to strike. Stop it. What does the rabbi do? What do you think? Is, does Jewish law permit strikes? Yes or no? What do you think? Raise of hand if yes. If these people strike. 
Well, general, these people and or teachers. What do you think? General? What do Jewish people <laughs> love strikes? I, I want to hear this because David Dubinsky, all the people. <laughs> I know that the heads of unions are very Jewish, but the question is a Jewish law, Talmudic law. What's the deal? So let's take a look at the text. So first of all, we've already established twice we read this, twice we read this, that any group of people can make whatever um, agreements they want in their own space, which means that, that, you, that workers can gather together, they can unionize, and they can pass internal regulations, including the regulation to go on strike. That is absolutely kosher. Because again, a self-contained group can do pretty much whatever they want. As long as it doesn't, as long as we're only talking about monetary implications, and of course, if there's no objection from the distinguished person. Right? We said before it has to pass the bar of the distinguished person. It has to be an oversight, overseeing you know, body, number one, oversight committee, and number two, monetary issues. But when it came to this yeshiva, there, there was an X factor. <laughs> what was the X factor? They were emergency workers. <laughs> yeah. A yeshiva, Torah study. Can't mess with Torah study. That's what the rabbis came. I right, said, so, oh, one second. Kids not studying Torah? That's not, it's not about money anymore. This is a serious business. Take a look at what the Talmud says. Listen to this. The word, this is text number 11. The world endures only for the sake of the breath of school children who recite words of Torah. Rapapa said to Abiah, what about my breath and yours? What do you mean? The world is sustained by the Torah study of kids? What about us adults? Abaya replied, breath in which there is sin is not like breath in which there is no sin. In other words, the pure Torah study by innocent children is way higher than the Torah study by adults that are a little bit more complicated. There might have been another um, reason for this. (laughs) <laughs> right, God, right, right. right. <laughs> Reish is said in the name of Rabbi Yehuda the Prince, school children may not be made to neglect their studies even for the building of the temple. Even if you were building the Beit HaMikdash, the holy temple in Jerusalem, you would not pull kids out of school, out of classes of their Torah studies to, stu- to build the temple. Reish Lakish also said to Rabbi Yehuda the Prince, I have this tradition from my ancestors. Any town in which the children are not in school shall be excommunicated. It's not kosher to have a town in which there is no school. You want to since when are there are the rabbi, are, are, since when are these rabbis princes? Oh, oh, oh. Ugh, it's a bad translation. It's a bad translation. It's Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. It doesn't mean prince. It means he was like um, I don't know. He Sonic was of some kind. yeah. He was like the leader of the community. It's just an awkward translation. Okay. It's the Hebrews Hanasi. It's I don't know. You could distinct. He was a distinguished person. Okay. Now take a look at text twelve a. This is how Rabbi Avadia Yosef. The former Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel weighs in on the question about teacher strikes. Here we go. This is the, the direct response to the question. Strikes in schools that result in the cancellation of the student's Torah study are a great sin. Torah Eve, study. Torah study. Right. This is not about mathematics. By the way, mathematics is holy. Right? Absolutely holy. I can recite the Pythagorean theorem all these years later. I got this. But Torah study has... The, the, this extra spiritual dimension. E back inside. Even if we assume that the teacher's demands for better pay are justified because their salary doesn't reflect their effort, 
they do earn enough for their basic living expenses. Hence, there is no justification to abandon thousands of Jewish children to the mercy of the street and to cause them to cancel Torah study in order to improve wages and working conditions. You know, listen, the, the workers' rights in me says, what? That's not fair. But the Torah side says, you got to respect this. Furthermore, it is well known that after a strike like this, even after students return to their studies, they will not be able to attend to their lessons properly once studies have been interrupted for some time. So it's not only going to cause havoc, now it's going to cause havoc in the future. And by the way, you should know, this is not just Jewish law. But as Deborah mentioned before, there is something called, I don't know, I don't know what the official, is it called essential workers or whatever? There is a category of individuals, of workers, that are not allowed to, based on federal law in the U.S., that cannot strike. Right, because their their work is deemed to be too essential. You know, money is money. Money is one thing, but we you, this this is like you know a third. You can't touch this. This is uh, this is too. Yeah, yeah. These are certain things. So school teachers teaching Torah in Judaism would be that level. However, what's interesting is we do have. Sorry, what I what I just read from the chief rabbi of Israel was when the question came up in Israel. But remember, the first question we had the case study was about New York City. So take a look at what the rabbi Rabbi Feinstein in New York in the Lower East Side what he writes. Listen to this. Listen to this. He says, if the teachers cannot afford their basic expenses which makes it difficult for them to properly teach their students. So in other words, it's affecting the Torah study, the very thing that you're trying to protect. They can't teach if they can't put food on their table. And furthermore, in addition, if, there is clear, if there's a clear assessment that a strike of a day or two will convince their employers to pay them on time and in accordance with their needs, perhaps there is room to allow a strike. And here we get a more moderate position on this, even when it comes to Torah study to, to, to yeshiva. Rabbi Feinstein says, under two conditions, I'll allow a strike. Number one, assuming that they cannot pay for the basic expenses. And, and this, the conditions that they're under are actually detracting from Torah study itself that we're trying to protect. And number two, if they can squeeze within a day or two and, and, get, and get what they need. This will enable them back inside to teach their students properly as they will no longer need to worry about finding another source of income. However, this requires great consideration and all the details must be thoroughly analyzed. One should strive to avoid this whenever possible. And, and by the way, what I love about this answer at the end is I think a, a general important note to keep in mind whenever we encounter these questions in Jewish law, there is never a one-size-fits-all answer about any of these cases. And by the way, this is true with business ethics, this is business law, Jewish business law, this is also true with medical ethics. You will never, if, if any rabbi worth their, I don't know, their Talmud, salt, whatever, will, will never give a blanket answer. Oh, in these cases, this is the law. You have to take in all of the considerations, who, what, where, when, how, how much are they making, how much do they need, what is, the, what is the school offering, what are the teachers demanding, what are the kids like, what, what homes do these kids come from, what is the impact on the children, you know, what's it going to have if they're off from school for a day or two, will the, the heads of the school respond to a strike for a day or two, or will it be a protracted uh, necessity? You have to take all of these factors into consideration, and then make a determination whether or not, in this case, we can greenlight a teacher strike or whether it is not greenlighted. There is no one-size-fits-all answer when it comes to strike. So the short, oh, sorry, when it comes to essential workers, i.e. school teachers, strikes. 
So it, to summarize, I'm going to do a general summary of the class, but to summarize this section, when it comes to strikes, to be clear, Judaism, Jewish law, respects the concept of unions. It's kosher. Collective bargaining, striking, again, we have to have that kind of with oversight. When, certainly when it comes to financial issues, that, that all can be part of the negotiations. When it comes to essential work, like teaching Torah, we might have a different consideration, but even then there might be room to allow it under the right circumstances. So in summary, in summation, uh, in this lesson we learned how Jewish law seeks to find a nuanced balance between various rights and competing interests. So we had a few cases. So in one case that we discussed, it is the balance between the interests of the professional guilds to increase profits versus the interests of the public to keep prices down. The butchers want to make coin, but the consumer wants to be able to buy chicken for chicken soup. So how do we balance that? We have to have a distinguished person figuring that out. The next case we talked about, we have the balance between the interests of workers to band together and negotiate collectively for higher wages versus the interest of the public to keep labor costs down, especially when the public is paying the salary of these workers. In another case, we talked about the interests of union workers versus non-union workers, who's getting the benefits and who's paying in. In another, in our last case, we talked about the interest of the public, sorry, professionals like teachers to strike to force the hand of employment of their employers versus the interest of the public that those services continue uninterrupted. And in all of these cases, attention must be given to the individual factors and considerations. There is no one-size-fits-all answer. These are some of the guidelines, though. In establishing the rule or the law of the distinguished person, Judaism seeks to empower unbiased experts that have a bit of a bigger view of things um, experts in both the Jewish law and the economy to determine these difficult cases and how to parse what makes sense in any given situation. In the absence of such a body like a distinguished person, so what if, what if a community doesn't have that? So then you would then rely on the rabbinate or the government to, uh, to step in, and, that, and, and it's a heavy task. And one hopes that the government or whichever body is overseeing that is up to the task of ensuring that the right thing be done. So it's a perfect time to issue a prayer that, for the government that those in charge should indeed be illuminated with wisdom and do the right thing and not be motivated by their own special interests because that's a whole other class. <laughs> All right. Very good. Yes. But may I just say something? Sure. Yes. Being on strike had a profound effect upon me. Nevertheless, I'm the child of immigrants who lived on the Lower East Side. My father at 11 years of age is out working. Then I'll bring a picture of him in. The um, settlement houses on the Lower East Side tried to end child labor. Hmm. They, they really did. It wasn't until the unions got involved that child labor ended. Hmm. Why? Because child labor was cheaper sure. than having adults men work. So when I go by the um, uh, statue of David Dubinsky, I laugh because no, he 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 was uh, the international labor 
What he did was screw all of his people. Why did this happen? There was so much corruption on the Lower East Side with making the dresses mm -hmm. that the people who made the dresses, uh, I know this personally, what happened, persons that made the dresses felt that they could no longer afford to make the dresses and schmatas on right. the, um, what was called Fashion Avenue. A guy came up with these things called um, container, container, you put them on the boats, and so you don't have to have the longshoremen, you don't need that. So they figured out with these container ships, it was cheaper to make the stuff in Vietnam, or in wherever else, send it here to America. And so it was cheaper to, to do that than to make the um, stuff here. When we had the Olympics and Ralph Lauren was making the stuff for the Olympics, it was all made in Asia. Hmm. So I'm not, please, I am not defending unions right. as being, uh, but, Without a union, I, I have to explain to you, my husband was an attorney. My son is a big shot. It, they don't want unions. Right. My father hated unions. So for them, is my the mother and the wife and the daughter to go out on strike with a picket, you couldn't know if I didn't do that. What would I have done when I went back to work? I would have been a pariah. Right. Now, I did anybody break? Did anybody break the uh, the what? picket line? Did anybody break ranks? Did anyone go to Let work me or tell no? You what happened? Oh yes, people did break rank. Being on strike stinks. Ask anybody in Atlanta now who's on strike because there are plenty of people in that movie industry right. that are suffering, and I right. know them because in my building we have a lot of them. What happened to those people? I want you to think about that. If I'm out on strike in November with a picket line, freezing to death, because it's cold in New York in November, and I have to march back and forth, and I'm not bringing home a paycheck, and I see somebody being what was called a scab, how am I gonna feel about that person? Right. A lot of animosity. What? A lot of animosity against that person. That person became a pariah. Yep. And I'm just describing, I know, I don't think many people that come to you are as passionate about this because <laughs> not many people go on have strike. To have that experience. <laughs> right. Well, I've never gone on strike. Well, you're there, lucky. There haven't been any rabbinic strikes lately. I don't know. Maybe that'll change. Well, <laughs> but in Israel, in Israel. When Israel started, I'm not talking now. In order to work, you had to belong to history. I'm not even saying it right. Histrodot or something? Histadrut. What? Histadrut. Oh, you, so he doesn't, you don't know what I'm Histadrut. Oh, all right. That was a union country, or you couldn't right. work. And I know um, the people that didn't come here went to Israel, my family and started that um, country, and they absolutely were pro 
union. I'm, it's not like that now, but that country started that way. Yep. Got to make sure it's fair for everybody. You don't hate me for being a... a no. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> By the way, there's a, I'm going to 